I'm not entirely sure if there's a Halloween version of Bah Humbug, but uh, Mick says, I hate Halloween. I even hated it when I was a kid. Eat to their own and make sure I won't be around. On the other hand, I love Christmas, says Mick. But I love this one in from Barry. He says, I refuse to negotiate with terrorists, masked invaders, holding my doorstep hostage and demanding sweets. It's trespassing and fraud and terrorism. I'll be contacting the local constabulary of if our house is targeted yet again this year. So that's into us uh, on social media this morning. You can text on WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tip today at tipfm.com. Time now for global politics. And as usual, delighted to be joined by Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you today. Um, I suppose we're fixated at the moment on the Middle East and there's little talk of uh, Ukraine. But of course, that continues to fester. That continues. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? The news agenda, one item can dominate Moves so on. quickly. Yeah. It just moves on, exactly. Uh, yet the war in Ukraine continues to continues to fester, continues to grind on. We're at the stage now where it seems to be that both sides are caught in this kind of a stalemate in the east of the country, yeah. east of the Dnipro River. Russian forces uh, have just about secured their lines. The much-vaunted Ukrainian counter-offensive hasn't really materialised. They were, I think... A lot of optimism during the summer that Ukraine would make substantial gains in this counteroffensive, but it hasn't transpired that way. And instead, they've been left kind of uh, grounded in their own positions. It's but you make some very interesting points. You're saying the cities such as Kiev uh, back functioning, back to a normality, I suppose. A degree of normality, and it's amazing how how this can happen in wartime because we, you know, Ukraine is under martial law at the moment. Uh, you have soldiers, active reservists being called up, a yes. little bit like Israel is. But you have cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv, many of which are back functioning, back with a semblance of normal life has returned. It is in the east of the country, though, that the, the conflict is concentrated primarily now. And that is, I think, where it will lie for the foreseeable future. So as the rest of Ukraine kind of moves on, you have this odd position where half the country is kind of uh, developing and, and functioning and operating like a normal society. The other half is is stuck, stuck in this quagmire, this wartime quagmire, kind of frozen in time, frozen in conflict. Um, but the Israel-Hamas war, how is that impacting, though, on Ukraine? And I'm thinking in terms of support, Thomas, is it, or is it impacting? On? Well, it, that's precisely it. We have unequivocal Western support for Israel uh, in that in that context. I think it has taken, because it has taken the limelight away from Ukraine to a certain extent, I, I think that will probably diminish uh, diminish the significance of Vladimir Zelensky and his his efforts to secure to secure vital weapons supplies to secure financing and we must we must remember financing is a massive element of this from a Ukrainian perspective they need money to rebuild their economy just like Israel will need money uh, to rebuild mm. after this uh, to rebuild Gaza Ukraine needs money to finance and keep its keep its budgetary ship afloat, essentially. So there is, I think, there is agreement, there is unanimous agreement between Western leaders that support for Ukraine should be unequivocal and without limits, unconditional. But at the same time, when their focus is so concentrated on the Middle East, it's very hard to see how they can sustain this level of support and sustain it into the future. And 
it will have to be sustained into the longer term rather than the short term because this looks like it is a long-term battle in Ukraine at the moment. And what about the Wagner Group? I mean, we're hearing very little about the Wagner Group. They've, they've effectively disappeared. Since the, the death of Yevgeny Progozin, yeah. they have effectively kind of faded away, dissipated. Now, they're still present. Uh, there are still Wagner troops there. There are some of them housed in Belarus under President Alexander Lukashenko. He has kind of a cohort uh, operating and training and living there, but very little significance otherwise. They're, they're not playing a significant role. The Wagner Group, though, it has to be remembered, are a multinational organisation. They have operations across Africa, as, course, as, as we know. Uh, they still seem to be operating there. No, no real senior military figure seems to have stepped up and filled the to void. Lead, to lead them, essentially. Yeah, is that yeah. It? yeah. Fill that void left by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, and I think that probably suits Vladimir Putin. I think the Wagner Group, towards the the end of Prigozhin's lifespan, was becoming somewhat of a headache for Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, somewhat of a hindrance to him. Um, and mm. I think he may be somewhat relieved at this point, that their significance isn't, that they are not as as significant in the conflict. Interesting. Let us move to uh, China then, and particularly to that Belt and Road Initiative. Would you just fill us in on that? Yeah, this is a fascinating. For people who aren't familiar with it, China a couple of years ago, it's a decade ago now, 2013, launched what is known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And what it is, is a series of of trade networks, essentially, stretching across the world from east to west, a little bit like we had the Great Silk Road in in historical times, we were that great merchant trade, yes. trade mm. uh, which extended across Eurasia, across the Eurasian landmass. China is now attempting to emulate that on a modern scale. It's put its own modern slants in it, so there are shipping lanes, there are there are aircraft lanes, there are, are land-based routes. Uh, and it's effectively, it's, it's a foreign policy experiment. So what it's is it doing, to compete with the West? It's to compete with the West, but what it's also doing is to gain influence over, over the West in certain respects. How does it do this? It does this by something called debt trap diplomacy, which is a very interesting concept whereby it, it invests billions in some cases, millions, billions of, uh, of, of dollars, we'll say, or of money, uh, into specific infrastructural projects in vi- various different countries. These countries, which might be impoverished, which might be underdeveloped, are happy to accept them, are happy to, mm. to embrace the newfound investment. But there's a catch. They are now beholden to China. They are now forced to, uh, uh, forced to avi- abide by China's wishes. And they're effectively in a, in a debt trap mm. with the Chinese, which allows the Chinese to exert influence over them. Uh, so it's a very... And uh, how many years is this? Uh, about 10 years? It's it? about a decade. About it's about a decade. decade. And it, has it come to fruition? I mean, has this worked, I suppose? Not it? to the extent that President Xi Jinping, I think, first envisaged. Yes. I think it hasn't been quite as successful. In in elements, elements of it have been a success. Elements, you know, China has invested huge infrastructural projects. We mentioned last week uh, some uh, the city of Colombo, uh, in Sri Lanka was uh, on the verge yes. of a huge infrastructural development there. There have been other um, um, other developments like that. It has also boosted, I suppose, its its significance or its its reach in places like the South China Sea, like around Taiwan and places like that where China would traditionally be seen as the dominant political player. So it is it is there in those parts. But I don't think it has... 
it has prospered to the extent that uh, Xi Jinping first envisaged. I think he saw, he saw, he thought it may be far more lucrative, far more mm. far-reaching, and far more, uh, and possibly to have turned some countries, I guess, from from the West. Uh, has that been successful? Precisely. Yeah. I I don't think it's been because yeah. of the Belt and Road Initiative. I think. I think countries are looking more to China. I think they're certainly moving and gravitating more towards the east, uh, particularly when it comes to the countries of the global south. However, I'm not sure that's because of the Belt and Road Initiative. I think that's more a result of the injustices they might feel. Uh, you know, they look at places like the war in Ukraine, now the war in Israel and Gaza, and wonder why they haven't received a, a similar level of support when there's atrocities occurring in their own countries. So they're inclined to look to countries, to China, for help. China is trying to forge a reputation as a mediator in certain respects, as a uh, as somebody who comes in, as a country who comes in and resolves these crises uh, and does its best to mediate and broker peace deals. Uh, and I think that is that is part of the reason that there is kind of a, a an outpouring, have been an outpouring of support for China in recent times. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, we have our own issues in the West, God knows, but would we want a Chinese-led world order? Well, that is, I mean, it's know? slowly, it's slowly moving in that direction, and that is the frightening prospect. I don't think we would. I think we have to trust in Western values. I mean, we've Western liberal democracy is, is a fundamental set of values. The Chinese model is a very different way of looking at the world. It's a very different prism through which you look at... Uh, global affairs and governance. It is uh, an oppressive country, an authoritarian regime, and it's a completely different worldview. So when you have this juxtaposition between East and West, you talk about America and China, the new, two new superpowers fighting for global supremacy, and it's a very interesting one. But China will only grow in significance uh, as the years go on. Its population is its population has stagnated to a certain extent. Yes. It does have troubles there, but it, its, it's economy. It's elderly, uh, a very elderly population. It's a very elderly yeah. population, yeah. and that's despite a one that's because of that one-child mm, policy, yeah. notorious one-child policy introduced some years ago. But its economy is still continuing to grow. It is the largest economy on the planet. Uh, it will continue to develop. It will continue to develop diplomatically, uh, and as China becomes an even more increasingly influential diplomatic player, the US will struggle to match it in terms of its dominance in that sphere. So it's a really interesting rivalry that's taking place here. We have other countries getting in on the act. India is there too. Yeah, India is course, a country yeah. which is rising rapidly. Its population, its economy, everything about it. Narendra Modi is there leading leading its surge. Uh, hmm. Leading its surge. And I suppose their advantages would be much younger population. As precisely. Well, yeah. Precisely. A much younger and I think more vibrant population and a population that has far greater productivity levels yeah. because of its youth. Uh, so India is another major player there. The rivalry between India and China is another dynamic to this, another interesting dynamic. Uh, there is a rivalry that exists there. There are disputes over territory, things like that. Uh, and I think it's a rivalry that will persist into the foreseeable future. Uh, but as far as mm. China is concerned, this Belt and Road Initiative hasn't maybe yielded the, the success that Xi Jinping first thought, but it's still proved influential. It is still allowing them to exert influence over global affairs. Isn't it fascinating to watch, though? It really, it really is. It really is. It's an amazing... 
power play, I yeah. think, between the major nations here. And, and uh, imagine we had that entire conversation without mentioning Russia. And, of course, the Russian dynamic there is very interesting. Absolutely, too, it, absolutely. Uh, we ask you to have a look at a historic figure for us every week. And this is one that fascinates me. It's yeah. Pope John Paul I. Yeah. Okay, and would, would you share with us? The, I mean, it, it. I think of Pope John Paul I, prior to ever reading into him, I think of him as this... I have an image in my head of this shady figure, this kind of behind-the-scenes dark operator that was suddenly, you know, suddenly popped into the Vatican and was dead 30 days later, effectively. And that's exactly what's happened to a certain extent. He did die within uh, within little over a month mm. of his papacy mm. being called. But it turns out that he was a far different figure. Some referred to him as the smiling pope. Yes, uh, yeah. he was a man of a man of inherent kindness, compassion. He didn't, wa- he didn't want. To be he didn't pope, want. To, he was humble. Yeah. He he decided to he decided to accept the honor because he felt it would be a, a, a an insult were he were he not to take on the role. But he didn't want to be pope in the first place. He was the last Italian pope that we've had. Mm. Of course, we've had Pope John Paul, a Polish man, uh, Pope Benedict, a German, and Pope, Ar- pope Francis, an Argentinian, in the years since. So he was the last Italian pope that we've had. But this very kind and compassionate figure is what comes mm. across in the literature, comes across in the reading. But well, of, of course, course, the backdrop to his papacy was corruption, particularly where the Vatican Bank was concerned. Particularly where the Vatican Bank was concerned. And that is, I think, the root of many of the conspiracy theories surrounding his death. There were corruption allegations surrounding the Vatican Bank that various uh, various cardinals were involved in, various senior figures in the church were involved in these financial scandals, financial imbroglios uh, that, uh, that really threatened to, to sink the Vatican in certain respects. And it was his intervention in these scandals that, that prompted his assassination, inverted commas. Now, he, it is said he died in his sleep. Uh, he died, you know, on... He died by peaceful means, by mm. natural causes mm. in his sleep. Obviously, that is heavily disputed. And we have a string of different conspiracy theories, much of this, much of which revolves around that Vatican Bank scandal. Mm. Well, there was a mafia involvement, supposedly, as well. Supposedly. Yeah. And, of yeah. course, we have to remember Italy of the time, you know, was it was a place where the mafia had huge influence, significant influence over over Italian affairs, over Vatican affairs. The Vatican itself was no stranger to corruption at the time. Uh, it had those problems. Maybe it's still no stranger to corruption since. People can make up their own minds on that, but it should mm. have been the 50, 35th day of his pontificate. He was found dead in his bed with reading material and a bedside lamp still lit. Tell me about, because this is something I didn't know about, tell us about the nephew or a guy who claims to be his nephew. What, what's the story there? Yeah, this was uh, this was a nephew of... Pope, Pope John Paul I, who, who claims to be a nephew. As, as you say there, another mysterious figure, uh, a shady kind of clandestine figure, operated behind the scenes, behind the, uh, behind the covers, and was said mm. to be a nephew of Pope John Paul I. Now, Pope John Paul I, I think, disputed this mm. uh, and wasn't sure of it himself. Um, but it just goes to show... But did he claim he was part of a poisoning of the Pope? It's right? precisely, precisely. Yeah. Uh, and this poisoning obviously led to his death eventually. Um, wow. at, you know, and so it's it's a real... Whenever I think of it, I think it's a real... 
it, it's a harbinger back to the, the, the old, the Catholic Church of old, whereby you had these mysteries. Yes. Uh, we're locked in mystery and scandal and intrigue. In the Middle Ages, particularly. In the Middle Ages, Ages yeah, in yeah, particular. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we had a time back throughout history when we had two popes. You know, when we had one pope in Avignon in France and the other in the Vatican yes. in Rome. Uh, there was times of corruption and scandal in the church. And I think this is kind of a, a throwback almost to those times, to that era. Uh, this kind of modern day fascinating story though and there's uh, Yallop's book as you say from from the the, the 1980s which is an incredible read as well Uh, as usual of course we're we're running out of time but let me ask you the question that's on everybody's lips Uh, who is Mike Johnson? Mike Johnson indeed yeah (laughs) new new speaker of the US House of Representatives think of him as the new Nancy Pelosi except he's a Republican so he's he's now the speaker of the House of Representatives which is the third most senior figure in the U.S. political... Where did he... I, I mean, I hadn't heard of he him. He just emerged from Lower, emerged yeah. from some ranch in Louisiana where he where he serves as, as congressman for... Irish diplomats have been have been concerned. They they seem to have no no idea who he is, no idea where he emerged from, but he has come from effectively nowhere to take on this highly significant role, this position of prestige within US politics, third in line to the presidency, and it remains to be seen now how he will do because he has a very much a divided Republican Party, which he presides over, and a divided House of Representatives between the Republicans and mm. the Democrats. So it's a real... But he's a Trump man, isn't he? He's a Trump man. Yeah. He has, he's the allied. He has Trump's support. He has Trump's unequivocal support, which will obviously give him major backing as we head into kind of a crucial period in the lead-up to the... Uh, to the presidential election, so it will be very interesting to see how he plays his cards in the months uh, in the months to come. It's going to be very interesting to UK politics then, and to the UK Labour Party, and certainly what's happening in Israel is affecting the party. It certainly it? is, and we've had, of course, claims of anti-Semitism, claims sure. all these claims levelled against the Labour Party, particularly under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Keir Starmer has kind of rid the party of that reputation. He's managed to he's managed to clean things up. But he sees it. The, he, he spoke last week. He sees the Labour Party as fragile when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, you know it, that it could open up new divides or reopen mm. old divides in the party, uh, which which may damage it and may damage it in the eyes of the public. We have to remember the Labour are flying high in the polls here. Mm. They're still well ahead of the Conservatives. Rishi Sunak. Uh, is really struggling for popularity, particularly at a domestic level. And Keir Starmer is a shoo-in to be the next Prime Minister. So he'll be hoping he can keep steering the ship steadily towards Downing Street at this point. It's going to be a difficult one, though, because the Conservatives are so very obviously pro-Israel. Precisely. And, and, and to provide opposition to that, as you say, it's a, it's a thin line. It's be. a, thin, li- it's a yeah. thin line, and he needs to... He needs to be shown to to show support for Israel, whilst I think acknowledging the sensitivity of the the issue for Gazan civilians and for the Palestinian situation. Because I mean, the two state solution, which is mm. is a far off prospect now, seems to be still uh, the line which most Western leaders have have invested themselves in. They want the existence of a Palestinian state beside an Israeli state. They want a peaceful coexistence. Now, that seems a prospect that is more distant than ever. Even more people now are looking at a one-state solution. I think so, I think so. Just finally, in terms of stuff to watch out for, Armenia as well, they're going to sign that peace deal? Yeah, they're on the verge of signing a peace deal with Azerbaijan. This is this conflict that has been festering and brewing in the South South Caucasus for, for many weeks now. They have finally come to an agreement and signed some sort of feast deal. So that 
will issue a kind of a, a detente in the in the relationship or in the in the conflict. So hopefully, hopefully, some manner of peace will come to the citizens of Nagorno-Karabakh, that uh, stricken region in the South Caucasus. All right, uh, Thomas. Most interesting, fascinating as usual. Thanks very Thanks, much, Brian. indeed. Thank, Thank you. you, Thomas. That's uh, Thomas Conway there with a look at global politics, news, and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.